Does that show up? Yes. So what I'm going to do this morning, what I hope to do, is to give an introduction to the talk and then to give us enough to get us going, uh, to give us a map of the chapter and look at the four key figures in the chapter. And it strikes me that this will be a little bit bitty. It'll be a little bit like the first day of uh, a, a holiday abroad where you spend the time unpacking and finding out where the nearest ATM is and trying to work out what your money adds up to and things like that. So it's a, a little bit that sort of thing this morning. So uh, let's, the, here's an introduction to the book of Revelation. Uh, I looked on the Daily Mail website about ridiculous complaints about hotels. Uh, the, uh, th these are apparently real complaints. Uh, somebody was, went on holiday and said, I wish to complain the sea was too blue. Uh, and uh, I wish to complain the ice cream was too cold. And of course, uh, there were t 10 of these, as there always are on websites, 10 ridiculous complaints about hotels. Those are rather classic. Uh, complaining. Uh, complaining comes to, really to do with your expectations, doesn't it? You, it depends what you had expected, whether you are disappointed and complain about it. And it seems to me that on a, on a holiday, I would be really happy if there was any sea at all and it was any shade of blue, really, and I would be happy with more or less any ice cream, with one or two possible exceptions, but basically, I think I would be happy. And the place where the sea is exactly the right shade of blue and the ice cream is exactly the right temperature, not too warm and not too cold, is not real. You know, it's not, not real life, is it, to, to get things exactly right? And I wanted to compare that with our expectations of the Christian life. Because that's a very important thing, that if people are Christians or thinking of becoming Christians or trying to live the Christian life, that they have right expectations of what the Christian life is like. So what did it say in the travel brochure? Did it promise you that the sea would be a particular shade of blue? Well, it probably didn't. And what does it say in the Bible about the real nature of the Christian life? So there is a glossy, unreal version in which, which I've, I've written this all down in the script, which I've managed to leave behind as well. Uh, so unreal versions of the Christian life that everybody's happy all the time, that you always have a smile on your face, that everybody thinks you're wonderful, that God always answers your prayers immediately, and it's happy and plain sailing all the way. If that was what you thought the Christian life was, you won't get very far, because that isn't what the Christian life is like. That is not a real version. The book of Revelation is quite sober or stark or brutal with us about what the Christian life can include. It doesn't always include the extremes, but it can. And that, this, I'm introducing us to the book of Revelation, that's the sort of thing it teaches us. It teaches us as we go through it that the Christian life is a warfare, 
a conflict, a battle. That's not the only thing it is, but it is that. And there are real enemies. There are enemies that intimidate. So we will meet this beast, this frightening beast. Are you very frightened by the picture on the screen? I hope you're really scared by that. Uh, But we meet in the book of Revelation a frightening beast who makes it his job to frighten the people of God. So intimidation is a real thing. There are enemies that beguile and seduce to bewitch, to tell you things that are almost true and to try and bring you in that way. So you see this really glamorous woman that I've, uh, that I've drawn up there. She's got a cup. She's off, off asking us to drink. She's very beautiful. And as you look at her, you're dazzled by her beauty. She's in the book of Revelation, and she's not what she appears to be. If you look into that cup, you find something quite nasty. Uh, we have enemies like that. We have enemies who deceive us and mislead us. And they too might come in, any, uh, in a shape which doesn't tell us that's what they're going to do. So I've drawn a priest. And in the book of Revelation, there are people who bring you to various gods or teach you how to approach various gods. And they're all enemies and that can come in different uh, capacities. They can be leading you to worship as the god Jupiter or the goddess Diana or whatever it was. That's how it would have been in those days. Or they could come into the church and say, well, this is how you worship the God of the Bible and they'll tell you the wrong thing. So these deceive and mislead and they're real deadly enemies. And in the book of Revelation, we also meet the power of the government, the power of the state to kill. Uh, So we find the soldier with the spear and the sword. And we find in the book of Revelation that Christians who have been killed already for, well, for what? We'll find out in a moment. So this is the way the book of Revelation portrays the situation. It is a warfare, and the book of Revelation will keep saying, to him who overcomes, who fights the fight of faith, and who does not give in to intimidation, and who isn't tricked and deceived by the pleasures and wealth offered by the beautiful lady, and who isn't uh, deceived and misled Uh, uh, by the false teachers and the false gods and who doesn't mind if he or she is killed they will still believe in Jesus that's tough isn't it but that's the Christian life as it is shown to us in the book of Revelation and that is what the book of Revelation says to him to the one who overcomes I give the promises. Well, uh, what have I got here? Yes, the, the current experience then. The current experience is of warfare and suffering. If you look 
down to verse 9, for example, you'll see uh, John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering kingdom, patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. So he links himself with us, and he says that's what we have in common. That's the Christian life. The suffering, uh, sometimes translated tribulation, just means suffering, kingdom, patient endurance. Patient endurance means keeping on, keeping on, hanging on in there. And he says that's, what, that's the sort of kingdom that we're in. The battleground, the battleground in the book of Revelation, you could boil it down and say the battleground is worship. Not how you worship, it isn't a battleground as to whether you sing songs by the Gettys or by Fatfish or Timothy Dudley Smith. It's not that sort of battle. It's the battle of who you worship. Whether you're going to worship Diana of the Ephesians or Jupiter or Jesus Christ. That's the battle. Or the emperor. That's the battle. Not so much how we worship as who we worship. And the battleground of witness. Witness, testimony, same word in Greek. What you say, what you're prepared to say when push comes to shove, who will you worship? Give us your answer. And the witness of the Christian to say, I worship Jesus Christ. And when the intimidation comes, you still say, I worship Jesus Christ. And if you look in verse uh, 9 again, uh, John says, I am on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You know, he, see how he links those two together. The, the message of God, the word of God, is closely linked with the testimony of Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ. I put my trust in him. He's the one I'm worshipping. Uh, so I've already uh, quoted John himself in verse 9. So, there's a little introduction. That's, what, that's where it's... That's, that's what, what the book is about, that's, uh, that's where it's going. And let's put enough in our bags just to get us onto the easy jet. We're not going to put a lot of luggage in the hold. You know, it's all going to be hand luggage. Uh, let's see what we have, enough to get us going. Well, verse 10, it says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and heard behind me a voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I haven't delayed to put a map in, but these are all churches in, in what we would nowadays call Turkey. Uh, they're written in the order, in a sort of circular order. So if you're a messenger going one by one, that's the order you'd go round the loop. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Have I put them in the right order? E-S-P-T-S-P-L. Yeah, that's right. So that's, that's where this letter is headed to these seven churches. And we need to know that there are seven churches in the Roman Empire. That's who it's first addressed to. Uh, and in those days, their situation was exactly as I've described already, that the Roman Empire was very wealthy. And if you're on the right end of the stick, you could make a lot of money 
by being in the Roman Empire. So wealth and glamour, uh, you know, there, uh, if we think our sexual ethics are lax these days, I think uh, the Romans could outdo us, really, in their uh, um, the sort of glamour, uh, power, wealth, all of that. Uh, that's one of the things that the Christian churches had to deal with. It would be a mistake to think that all they had to deal with was persecution. That's not the case. Uh, the wealth and the power and the attractions of the Roman Empire was something they had to deal with as well. And I put polytheism, which is the correct word, but let me tell you what it means. Poly means many, theism means gods, and so having many gods. I've already mentioned that, but I put it up on the list there too. And emperor worship. Historically speaking, as the, Rome, uh, the Roman emperors progressed, progress is the right word, they began to build themselves up and say, you know, I'm so good that not only do I expect you to send me a Christmas card, but I'd also like you to worship me. And uh, it's a stupid thing, isn't it? Fancy allowing, uh, allowing yourself to think you're so great that other people ought to worship you. Uh, the Emperor Nero had coins produced and the stamping on the coin said, Nero, saviour of the world. Not terribly humble, is it? Uh, and you might think, I thought someone else was saviour of the world. But Emperor Nero put uh, saviour of the world on his coins. Uh, and they had misleading teaching in the churches, which we will see in due course. So that's something to help us get going. Uh, here's another thing to help us get going. There is a style in the book of Revelation. It's not like the letters of Paul. It's not like the Gospel of Mark. It uses a particular style. The technical name is apocalyptic. You don't have to worry about that, but uh, there is a name for it. It is a style which uses visions and angels and pictures and symbols and beasts and numbers. There's all these sorts of things. In the same way that if you did look at a cartoon in the paper, you would almost certainly understand the language of the cartoonist. So he doesn't draw a photograph, does he? He draws a sort of picture to represent something. And I don't know whether they would do this nowadays, but perhaps in the wartime, a cartoon of a bulldog would represent Britain. The British bulldog, the bulldog spirit, you know, that sort of thing. Or Britannia, the lady with the shield, and the spear, she'd represent Britain as well. So you have those coded pictures meaning something. That's the way cartoonists work, and it's the way apocalyptic works. Uh, John uses it in his own particular way, but I want you to know he hasn't made this up 
himself, and, 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 no, let me be more clear about that. He hasn't made up this style himself. He's using a style that already exists. So in verse one, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. In, uh, in verse one, it says, he made it known, the word is to sign, to signify, and it sort of warns us that signs are going to be used in this book. And it's uh, via an angel, and that prompts us to think, oh, we might find angels cropping up through here, and we do. And uh, what have I else have I got? Verse two. I can't remember why I put a reference to verse two. I wish I brought my notes with me. Verse four uh, is the beginning, or I think this is the first, uh, first incident where a number starts to be used. Verse four, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And you might have noticed that the number seven crops up and, it's going, and numbers are going to crop up through the book. So did you notice the seven churches? Do you notice seven anything else's? Seven spirits, yeah. Seven lampstands. There's seven something else's as well, if you spotted it. Verse 20, stars, seven stars. Uh, apocalyptic uses, you know, this style of writing uses numbers in a certain way to say a certain thing. And I would, if I cut to the chase and tell you, I think the number seven means the full amount of something uh, in all its variety. The full. The, so when he writes the seven churches, he doesn't really mean there are only seven churches. There are many more than that. But he's writing to the entire church uh, in all its variety, the whole thing, and he uses the number seven to signify it. Now, have any of you ever been to Newcastle? Yeah. Did you understand what they were talking about? Because <laughs> you talk like that, don't you? Something like that. Why? If you go somewhere and somebody's speaking with a certain accent, you have to listen, and then you gradually pick up. When they said, oh, why? He meant hello. Oh, why, man? And when he says man, he means me, chap, boy, man, or whatever. I mean, that's a very, if, if anybody here was from Newcastle, they would say, we don't speak like that at all. But you, you get the idea. You listen, and you gradually tune in, and you think, ah, oh, oh, that's what they mean, that's what they mean. Let me give you another example of traffic. Uh, once, when I was, uh, a long time ago, went to Paris, and was involved with driving a car round the, what's that? Uh, it was, hmm? Well, uh, it was, it, I don't, it, it was round, it was round, a, um, yes, round the Arc de Triomphe. And I talked to a colleague afterwards and who'd done the same thing. I said, it's pretty hair-raising, wasn't it? And he said, yes, what I did, he said, before I drove round the Arc de Triomphe, I went and stood there for quite a while and I watched how the cars did what they did. You know, do you suddenly change course? Do you indicate? Do you beep? Do you just go ahead? You know, there is a way of doing it. 
And if you watch, you pick up the way of doing it. And I would like to suggest the same thing with the book of Revelation. Let's not make up our minds beforehand what it's all about. Let's listen. Let's listen to the accent. Let's observe the way he makes points and how he weaves his way through things. Let's learn it that way. That's my suggestion. I think that's... uh, And I should have said, some of the symbols are interpreted. So in verse 20, what was this seven stars business? What are these seven lampstands? Is this... What does it mean? It signifies something, and we're given an interpretation here. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, I think we might get a bit stuck on what does he mean by the angels of the seven churches, but at least we've got an explanation that the lampstands are the churches. At least we understand what what a church is. Uh, And there's some symbolism that's explained to us. It isn't all explained, but that bit was. And let me also say, just to get us going, that one quality of this writing is an extraordinary amount of precision. So here's one example of it. In verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So Chris was blessed this morning by reading aloud the words of this prophecy, and we were blessed by hearing it, and we will be blessed if we take to heart what is written. So that, you've been blessed. I hope you realize that, because that's what it says. And in the book of Revelation, the idea of somebody being blessed, blessed is this or blessed is that, is written down a number of times. Would anybody like to suggest how many times, if you were to work your way through, how many times it says blessed is such and such? Seven. It is correct. If you, if you get a computer out or do it with pencil and paper, you'll find there are seven. And I find it interesting that, uh, you know, that's just one example of the precision. He's made sure that as he's gone through, there are s- exactly seven blessings. Is that enough to get us going? Yes, it is. Right, let's uh, look at a map of the chapter. Now, I'm just going to turn around to see wh- how visible that is. It's, can you see it at the back? Yeah, uh, okay. And I've also forgotten to bring my little pointy thing, so... I'm doing well today. This is, uh, I've tried to do a map of the chapter to say what what the main features are. There's a lot of detail and it's easy to get bogged down in the detail. So top left, forget the trumpet because that's just part of the background. Next top left is the introduction. And that's what John starts us off with, doesn't he? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he introduces it. He says, this is what it is. This is where it's come from. This is how important it is. You're blessed if you read this. It's an important text. There are important words. God is in on this. And if you read it, you're blessed. So there's an introduction. And then he starts it off in the form of a letter. Now, if you're writing a letter, how do you you begin a letter, Tim? If you're writing a letter, how would you begin it? 
Dear Sir, yeah, exactly. We have a convention for writing a letter. We put Dear Sir at the beginning, and at the end of it, we put Yours Faithfully. I think if you put Dear Sir, you put Yours Faithfully. If you put Dear Mr. Fry, you put Yours Sincerely. We have a convention of beginning and ending a letter. It's different in those days. In those days, you began a letter by putting at the, at the beginning of it, grace and peace to you. So this is John, begins a letter, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. And it's an interesting grace and peace because uh, it, uh, well, we'll come to that in a moment. So he begins it as a letter. And then we get a couple of quotes with an amen at the end. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen, number one. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So you've got those two sort of statements, quotes, with an amen at the end of them. Then God says something. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So you get that quote. Then John starts in a sort of autobiographical way. So I've got down to around here. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos. So I've put him, I tried to put him on an island. On my screen, that's green. On this, on this big screen, it's turned out yellow. But there's John. He's, uh, he's on the island of Patmos. And why is he there? He's, he's sort of, uh, well, he's either in exile or in prison or on parole or something. He doesn't particularly want to be there, but he's been put there. He's on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there he is. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. So that's the trumpet you should take notice of, that one there. So he hears this loud voice behind him, a voice like a trumpet. And he's told, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. So there's his scroll, and he's going to write it down. So he's looking the wrong way, isn't he? Because the trumpet's behind him. So he turns round to see the trumpeter. And he doesn't see a trumpeter. He sees uh, this amazing figure. Uh, he turns round, verse 12, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone, so notice all these quotes, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash round his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its all is brilliance. And this is the picture that he sees, and the emotional reaction is bang. He falls down as dead. I was thinking about this because people generally don't want to come to church 
to be given an emotional reaction of intense fear, so much that they just fall down as if they were dead. I think people would come to church to be given an emotional reaction of feeling good and positive and happy. But I can't do that from this chapter. This is the emotional reaction. When he sees this person, bang, awful, terrible. I fell down at his dead. But he does get the reassurance, stand up. And the person introduces himself and uh, tells him again to write down what you have seen. So that's, I try not to get too much into the detail of it, although I did get carried away a bit. But uh, this is the map of the chapter, an introduction. It's a letter. There's some quotes. God says something. John tells us about being on the island. Here's a trumpet, looks around to see what it is, gets told to write something. That's a map of the chapter. So I thought we would then look at the key figures in this chapter. And uh, this is the last thing that we're going to do on this first day of our outing. What can we say about John? So this is John, the same John that was a disciple of Jesus. And we can say that he's a Christian like us. Verse 9, he says, I am your brother and companion. And he says, the, the things that I experience are the same things that you experience. We're in this together. We're the same. Uh, and I think I've already commented on that. But he's also different from us and that he is able to write scripture. He is given words from God to write down and give to us. That's exactly what he's telling us, isn't he? He's saying, my book is not just like, you know, a book you might write. Uh, if you wrote your autobiography, you know, one day I was standing in Worthing and I heard a car horn behind me and I turned around to see who it was and it was somebody I knew. No, it's not like that. That's, that's on a different level. I'm telling you words from God. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Write down what I show you. And John says, that's exactly what I'm doing. He's writing scripture. I, uh, I read a quote, and I didn't uh, follow it up. I think it was by the former Archbishop of Canterbury who had said that the book of Revelation is something like the ravings of a madman. I think, did you really say that? And maybe, I think he did, but somebody said it. I think it, it's not the, ra it, it's, it's very, some of it is very bizarre. The picture's given a very bizarre, but this is the word of God. Yeah, it's the word of God. And we're blessed if we treat it as such, listen to it as such, take it on board as such. Uh, and he is testifying to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's so important, testimony of Jesus. I'm going to move on. God is shown to us in this first chapter and there are some really grand uh, sentences. So we're told in verse four, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. 
It's a present who is, and it's a past who was, and who is to come. If, you, if you're learning English and you think, what tense is that? It's actually a present, isn't it? Who is to come, but it's expressing a future. Uh, and this, we're, we're talking about the God who is the Lord of time. The God who is, you can't get rid of him from now, he is. The God who was, he's back at the beginning of everything, and who is to come. There's more of God for us yet to learn. He has more things to do, and he's not gonna absent himself, and he's not the God who's gonna be less and less relevant, but he's the God who is to come. The future is God. Hmm. Amen. We have uh, God described. We have uh, just touched on, but I might as well touch on it, the sevenfold spirit. It says in verse, in verse four, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. If we take it that the seven means the whole thing in all, all its variety, it's saying the sevenfold spirit, the spirit who has an entire work, a very varied work, but he's there around the throne of God and the, uh, and, and the spirit is sending this letter to, uh, where uh, John says, I, I was in the spirit. I think that comes up if I click that, yes. He was in the spirit and as we go on into the next chapters, it keeps saying, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So the Spirit is not put center stage, but the Spirit is there. And he, the third person of the Trinity, is there quietly, but vocally. So he's not silent. Quiet doesn't mean silent. It means sort of unobtrusive. He's speaking. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's, he works variously, different ways in different people, different situations, but he's actively present throughout. This is a book about the Spirit as, as much as anything else. And we have center stage Jesus and some awesome descriptions of him in verse 5 he too is the writer of the letter or the sender of grace and peace from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and if he expects us to be faithful witnesses it's only because he was a faithful witness first that's who he is he is the faithful witness the one who speaks the truth and has never been intimidated, has never deceived, has never backed off what needed to be said. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead, implying that there will be more who rise from the dead. In fact, he will bring all his people with him. But it's an important keynote here because one of the subjects of the book of Revelation is death. Death is not the end. Death is the next step onwards to the resurrection. And Jesus 
holds the keys of death. And he he's told us he is the firstborn from the dead. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that's just quietly stated as the last phrase here. But how subversive, how radical that is. Because the emperor Nero uh, will be saying, I'm the savior of the world. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus will be saying, actually, you're not. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords, and you are under my thumb. You may not realize it, but I insist that I am Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Even Caroline Lucas is ruled by Jesus Christ. He is the figure of sacrifice. We'll see more of this later on. But uh, in, verse, in verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. How? By his blood. That's how he did it. That's the great victory he's achieved. He didn't give up under threat of death. He died for the salvation of his people. And we have this vision of the risen Christ, which we'll just look at before we close. The vision of the risen Christ. Take a look at it, and, yeah. If you're able to, perhaps you'd like to flip back to Jan Daniel chapter 10. So one of the things about the book of Revelation is it quotes lots of the Bible. And the more of the Bible you have read, the more likely you are to pick up on what is being said. But let's go for a moment, many, many hundreds of years before, to the time when God's people were in exile uh, in, in Persia, in Iran. Is Baha here? He's from Iran. Anybody here from Iran? Okay, this is where he was. Uh, and Daniel was on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. Daniel 10, verse 4. And he is in a great perplexity about the situation of God's people in exile there. And he sees a person. Daniel 10, verse 4. I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold round his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision, but the men with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deadly pale. I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. That's Daniel's vision, and don't you think that John's vision is very, very much like it? Daniel saw... Uh, God showing himself. And people use the word theophany. 
for it. It doesn't get us any further forward because it just means God showing himself, but that's the word for it. And there, by the Tigris River, Daniel saw the same person that John saw, and Daniel was absolutely flattened by it. And I want to say Jesus Christ, that's who he saw, is a great, colossal, awesome person. And I think that we can get our view of Jesus too small. That we think of Jesus as being our chum who will pat us on the head and do exactly what we ask him to do. And we fail to, re- to realize his awesomeness. That if we were to see him in this manner, our first reaction would be, I can't cope with this. This is, you know, this is too much we would be scared stiff. But it isn't just the scariness, because at the end, he says, oh, yeah, yeah, this is true, I am awesome, but I put my hand on you and say, get up. That is really encouraging, isn't it? This awesome person says, I don't want you lying on the ground, quivering like a jelly, although I quite understand you being like that, I put my hand on you and say, don't be afraid, get up, I've got something for you to do. That's what he says to John. I think that's what he says to us. The, the details of the vision, let me just pop through them quite quickly. The robe down to the feet is suggestive of being a priest. Uh, the gold, well, it, that is dazzling and brilliant, isn't it? The white hair, I'm looking in the Revelation bit now, Uh, he was dressed with a golden sash around his chest, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. White hair uh, is a sign that you should respect the person with white hair. So you needn't bother dyeing your hair any longer, just get respected. Uh, That's why Jesus in this has white hair, because he's worthy of great respect. Uh, His eyes, are like, what does it say? His eyes are like blazing fire. We'll come across those eyes later, but his eyes look at us. He says, I know you, I see you. And that is both extremely frightening and extremely comforting. It's frightening because he says, I know, and you can't pretend anything in front of me. But he also says, I know what you've been through, and I know things that you struggle with that you wouldn't dare to tell anybody else about. I know. His eyes are the eyes, are the piercing eyes of perception. And this, uh, his face shines. His face is like the sun shining in its, all its brilliance. His feet are like burnished bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice is like the sound of a multitude, like the sound of, you, know, you could do this nowadays with, with a, a CGI and, and sound manipulation. You could make it so that when you heard somebody's voice, it echoed round like a multitude. Well, use your imagination. This is what it says here. The voice of Jesus echoes like a multitude. And in his hand, he holds something. Well, he says, I hold the keys of death and hell, verse 18. Uh, but uh, I was particularly thinking of the seven lampstands and the seven stars. Uh, and w- I don't want to get into too deep water about it. I think what he's saying is the churches, 
looked at from an earthly point of view and looked at from a heavenly point of view. Because churches aren't just earthly organizations, are they? They have a spiritual reality and a spiritual um, identity. And I think Jesus is saying, I'm here walking among the seven churches and I hold the churches in my hand. That would include us, wouldn't it, if we're part of his church? So here is this vision which we must uh, move on. It's fearsome and intimidating, yet wonderful and reassuring. Perhaps we can grasp a bit of that. He holds life and death and heaven and hell in his hands. So where does it leave us after our brief uh, arrival in the book of Revelation? Well, we face actually the same sort of enemies. Probably less the persecution, certainly the deception, probably less the intimidation, certainly the attractions of a wealthy and easy society. We face uh, the same temptations. Uh, we have the same great God, and he is a great God, and we have the same Savior, the Lord Jesus who is the faithful witness and who in the battle has overcome. Let's stop there and we'll sing together. <laughs>